interesting topics to kick off your weekend. Looking at the news with an eye of faith. This is Friendly Fire with Stu Kearns on the Voice of Lincoln, fourteen hundred and ninety-nine three KLIN. Good Saturday morning. It's a Friendly Fire Saturday. Stu Kearns, your host. Glad to have you along. It is that time of year where not only do we have all the local programming, so you got uh, Friendly Fire here at seven. You got. Uh, Oh, now I got to remember. Kaylee and Husker Hour is coming up. You got the best of uh, LNK today. Uh, you got One Shot One Life coming up at eleven, and I think noon. You even get today a Grow Lincoln, which, uh, which for me, the big baseball fan, it is also the beginning of baseball season. So right after Grow Lincoln, go straight into Husker baseball, and uh, who isn't excited about that? Well, okay, I am, but uh, but uh, whether they whether they're off to a great start or not doesn't make any difference. Uh, they're getting ready for another great season. They are picked to be first in the Big Ten, which of course uh, we expect a repeat championship from the uh, baseball team. It's uh, I, I saw something in the paper. This happens once in a while. I see something in the paper and I say, "Oh, that's interesting." It's a transition and a story that needs to be told. And this time, the story to be told was about somebody who was a part of my life decades ago, and I kind of kept a little bit of a tabs on. And then, uh, but she's uh, she's done some work, and now she's headed off to do some new work. And uh, so I thought we got to get her in to talk about this. Anne Hunter Pirtle, how are you today? I'm doing well, Stu. How are you? I'm just I'm just fine. Uh, we go way back. We were we were comparing notes here. You're within a few months of the same age as as my daughter. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 1986. 1986, <laughs> and it was uh, it was a big year. Uh, <laughs> and the reason that we got connected was, uh, and my listening audience should know that I started my career as a as a high school teacher. Mm-hmm. And right across the hallway from me <laughs> was another teacher named Hunter Pirtle. Yes. Uh, I, I think you're related. <laughs> yeah. To my knowledge, there's only 400 Pirtles in the world. I would be shocked if there were more of us than that. It's such an wow. odd name. But yes. yeah, yeah. my dad, Pat, start, uh, started as a teacher at Southeast in the early 80s, and uh, and you were there too. We had a great time <laughs> together. We uh, would... Uh, it was, uh, he, we, we became actually very, very good friends during those years. And it was, uh, it, you know, of all the things, it's funny when I left to go to seminary and eventually become a pastor, one of the things I always make sure that people know is that I didn't live, leave because I, I didn't like teaching. Mm-hmm. I actually, I, I still love teaching. I, I mm-hmm. still, uh, think of myself, uh, you know, when I, then I know this sounds weird to people cause I've been a pastor for almost 32 years now, but when I put my head on the pillow at night, and my residual self-image, you know, emerges. <laughs> I'm still a teacher. Yeah, that's I happen to teach the Bible. I don't teach uh, sophomore English, but right. Uh, that's that's my my self-identity. A lot of the same principles. What did you take away from from being a teacher that you still use now? That is a great question. Here she is. See, she's good. She's already interviewing me. <laughs> that is, the, uh, you know, the number one thing I think is that uh, that. Teaching isn't talking. Teaching isn't presenting. Teaching is engaging. Yeah. And if and if people are engaged, they will not only learn, but they'll remember much yes. better. I remember way back from teachers' college. Okay, this is like you know ancient history. <laughs> but one of the things they they gave these stats about how if they if you hear something, you'll remember it at a certain level. If you hear it and then write it down, you'll hear it at another level. If you and then if you engage. Uh, you know, answer, think about a thought question about it and answer it, then you go, mm-hmm. go to a different level. And so the whole idea was that the more 
sensory experiences you have with that knowledge, the better you're going to retain it. Yes. Does that still sound familiar? Totally. Yeah. Why don't we do that? <laughs> <laughs> Ask the inventors of PowerPoint. I, I want to slam my hand in the car door every day when I'm on Zoom and there's a PowerPoint. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But absolutely, the more that we can engage with material, the better we remember it. Yeah. So <clears> when did you... Uh, now, so you grew up in Lincoln. I did. Uh, went to East High School. I did. And then uh, wh- tell where did the story pick up from there? Yeah. So... Um, I went to UNL for, for undergrad and for my, my master's degree. So my undergrad degree is in political science and French from UNL. I Me. I lived in France for a couple <laughs> of years, actually. Um, it was amazing. I got to teach English in a middle school and a high school in eastern France for a year. Um, and then I came back to UNL and started a master's actually in agricultural economics, which mm. was a little bit of a shift, obviously. Um, but I was interested in... Um, climate issues in particular, and how um, how the economy intersects with with the environment. So um, I got a year into that two year degree, and I had been applying for some internships in Washington because I was interested in politics. And so in the summer of 2011, I got to go work in then Senator Ben Nelson's office um, in in D.C. And Mm -hmm. while I was there, I found out that I'd been accepted into a White House internship in the fall of 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, So I ended up putting school on hold, thought it was going to be for a semester, ended up staying two years um, first for a semester for that internship and then um, moved over to the White House Council on Environmental Quality for a, a real job wow. <laughs> um, yeah. and got to work on land and water conservation policy. Wow. So that was fascinating. It was um, everything from oceans, f- forests, fires, floods. My, my boss um, was overseeing some of the work on the BP oil spill cleanup. Um, there was a major drought in the summer of 2012 that our office was monitoring closely. There was a whole range of issues. So I got to just learn and absorb. And then um, in the fall of 2013, I came back to UNL to finish up that master's. Um, and in 2014, went back to D.C. Um, as a speechwriter to the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and that was um, a fascinating role because I was getting to communicate about climate issues in particular, along with a host of other environmental challenges, um, and also get to see how a a really excellent senior official worked. Actually, several senior officials did their jobs, um, Mm -hmm. and I I took away a lot from that. And then um, in the summer of 2016, well, actually, let me back up a little bit. Early in 2016, I was still in D.C. um, working at the EPA, and I was reading the Journal Star online, like I regular di- regularly did on Saturday mornings, uh-huh. <laughs> a lot like now. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I started to see news that some policymakers in Nebraska were wanting to push policies related to school privatization. So vouchers, charter schools, scholarship tax credits, that sort of thing. Um, and that concerned me for a couple of reasons. First, as you, as you mentioned, my parents are public school educators, mm-hmm. and I know... Um, not only how hard they work, but how much they believe in every kid's potential and, and how, how true that is of their colleagues, too. But also, I was getting to do what I wanted to do in the world because of the public school education that I got in Nebraska. And um, I, I didn't like seeing that threatened. So pretty much I got mad. I wrote an opinion piece in the Journal Star um, opposing school privatization and thought thought that would be that. It was like, okay, well, I did something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I'm going to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, was contacted by um, 
uh, some folks out of Omaha doing some similar work who offered to put me in touch with some local foundations. And one thing led to another. Basically, it was like there was a need for some sustained policy work on these issues. And so uh, in the summer of 2016, I moved home to start what became the organization that I, I had been running for the last five and a half years, which is Stand for Schools. All right. And uh, we'll talk more about that here in the next in the next segment. Mm-hmm. Um, jumping back a little bit. Mm-hmm. So living in France for two years. Yeah. I think I remember a Christmas card about that or something. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, is that for for many of us, we've we, we may have traveled a bit or whatever, mm-hmm. but we've never had an extended cross cultural mm-hmm. experience like that. Mm. What was what was the, the impact of that on the way that you look at life and the way that you uh, do your work? Oh, that's a great question. It was really um eye-opening. It was it, it was hard. I mean, I, I was extremely privileged to get to go, right? So I went my junior year of college and spent that uh, in France and then went back the year after college to, to teach for a year. Um, I was extremely lucky to get to to get to go, but it was really hard to go. I was I was leaving home for the first time. I grew up in Lincoln and I went to UNL and so I'd never really been mm. far from home before. And suddenly it was really far, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, it was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to come home for Christmas even. Um, I won't see my family for basically a year. And um, I I had studied French for six years at the point that I went there. And I, I remember, I'll never forget getting off the plane. Somebody from the study abroad program had my like name on a card at the airport to pick me up. And I, you know, went over to this guy and he said like, hi. And I, I didn't, I didn't understand what he said. And I was like, oh, no, this is going to be harder than I thought it was. So it turned out that, you know, studying a language academically and and actually knowing how to speak it are two very different things. And so I had to, you know, pick the ladder up um, in daily life over time, which is really, Mm -hmm. so far as I I can see, about the only way to do it. Um, And so it it hugely broadened my horizons. And I I think it gave me an understanding that... um, the way that we do things, whether it's in Nebraska, in the U.S., any place in the world, isn't the only way to do things. And that doesn't mean that it's necessarily better or worse. It's just different. Yeah. Um, and it gave me that kind of understanding all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> we're, we're all products of our culture. And yeah. it's... Uh, of course, we do it the right way. Uh, that's, I think that's the point we were trying to make. Uh, we're going to take our first break. We'll be right back talking with uh, Ann hunter Pertle. Uh, she's, uh, again, the founder of Stanford Schools. She's, she's headed off to another great adventure. And uh, it's just fun getting caught up. Uh, it's a Friendly Fire Saturday here on The Voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. Keeping the topics lively and the conversation civil. This is Friendly Fire with Stu Kurtz on The Voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. We are back. It's a Friendly Fire Saturday uh, talking with Ann Hunter Pertle here. And um, and before the break, we were talking about your background and the different things that you've done. And then and this I uh, and then you uh, got the opportunity to actually start a new nonprofit called Stanford Schools. Now, I'm again, I'm I'm a former teacher. I'm. Uh, I was, I'm a pub, uh, product of the Lincoln Public Schools K through 12. And so I'm very positive, but I, I tend to be kind of an all of the above guy. Sure. You know, that's, that's, hey, there's a place for homeschool. There's a place for private schools. There's a, pl- there's a place for public schools. Mm-hmm. What was it that, that made you say, yeah, but, but we've got to, uh, we, we've got to work harder at protecting and, 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 uh, and solidifying 
uh, public schools? Yeah, great question. Well, first off, I want to say I, I totally agree with you. There's a place for for all of the above, right? I think homeschooling is great. I think private schools are great. We've got some excellent private schools here in Lincoln and in Nebraska. Um, no question about that. The difference is, um, and what was new when I started Stand for Schools, is that Nebraska has never funded private schools with state dollars. Um, and that's where where I start to have concerns, and I know that a lot of folks start to have concerns, um, basically because um, private schools don't have to take all students, and because um, their their curricula doesn't have to align with state standards in the way that public schools do. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much what it boils down to. Yeah. So there started to be, um, like I said, around 2016, some additional political threats that, that in my estimation really started to originate outside the state. Um, and we've started to see a lot more focused attention from, from organizations and individuals outside the state wanting to influence Nebraska education policy and take it in some of these directions that, that I think are really troubling. And I, I know that a lot of folks agree. So, um, so that was kind of the reason for starting Stand for Schools and, and the, the, the focus and, and the reason for why then. Mm-hmm. What are some of the, um, we were talking about, uh, you know, as a pastor, I, I talk with other pastors about COVID and how it's, it's really been actually, I have yet to bump into a pastor who doesn't, hasn't said this has been one of the hardest stretches of my Absolutely. professional life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when I think of all the institutions impacted by COVID, uh, I, I think the schools have been just, just devastated. Uh, is this, is kind of what we've learned from COVID and, ex- and, and experienced in terms of uh, the protocols and, and masks and, and staying at home and people learning to homeschool who didn't never planned on homeschooling and all right. those kinds of things. Is this one of the greatest challenges to public schools that really in our lifetime or, or, or among them? Uh, I think it definitely is. And I think it's because it's it's one of the challenges, one of the biggest challenges of our lifetimes. And that's true for, for everybody. Mm-hmm. I think everyone has been affected by COVID, certainly not everyone equally. Mm-hmm. And um, certainly some folks have suffered a lot more than others. But mm-hmm. absolutely, I mean, the, the challenges of um, keeping kids safe uh, and healthy and keeping families safe and healthy, I think yeah. one of the huge um, things weighing on on school leaders' minds, especially early in the pandemic, is the fact that a lot of kids live certainly with parents, but but also sometimes with grandparents or other family members who are immunocompromised or have real, you know, underlying medical challenges that really put them at risk. And so in thinking about, you know, how to manage COVID in schools, yes, it's about the kids and it's about the teachers, but it's also about everyone that they interact with yeah. and, and the, the huge connection point that schools play in our communities, right? Yeah. Um, and so all of that, no surprise, has been really hard. Um, yeah. There's just been a lot to balance. I know that's been true of churches too. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know that the teachers, my understanding is there's somewhat of a, had, was somewhat of a teacher shortage and that, that I'm assuming that because of COVID that whatever shortage there was, it's worse. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge concern um, for, for education leaders here and across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think what teachers have been asked to do and what they've delivered is, is remarkable Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. I think it, you know, thinking back to the early pandemic um, here in Nebraska, a lot of schools went on spring break and then did not come back for, for the rest of the year. Um, most of them came back in the fall of 2020, but 
um, for teachers to totally revamp how they taught and take it online in less than a week yeah. is remarkable. It had never been done before, and they made a way out of no way. So I think, um, you know, it's been, but that said, it's been super hard. You know, I think yeah. any any teacher you talk to will acknowledge that. One thing that has been really hard, and, and this is getting better in a lot of districts, but um, last year or the year before at various points, a lot of teachers were being asked to teach in person and online simultaneously, which is just really hard to do. It's mm-hmm. It's so hard to split your focus that way and to you know, take eyes even for a moment off the kids that are sitting in front of you to mm-hmm. to tend to the kids on Zoom. That's just really hard for any any human being to do, yes. <laughs> no matter how yes. great a teacher they are. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think teachers, but but we're seeing this across so many professions, right? You know, folks are just exhausted. It's been a hard yes. couple of years, yeah. and um, you know, it's something that that uh, we're going to have to wrestle with in education for a while. Yes, it's, and. And along those lines, again, just teacher retention. If you could, if you if you had the magic wand and you said I could do two or three things that would that would <laughs> help enhance a teacher retention, and and because again, it's a it's a job of choice. You can wake up one day and say, you know what, I love it, but I can't do this anymore. I'm I'm just I'm worn out. And if you could, if you could do two or three things that would just really enhance uh, the experience and and help. Uh, teacher retention. Anything come to mind? Yeah, there's, a, there's a, how much time do we have? There's a lot of things. I'll try and boil it down. Um, so, you know, one thing, um, schools got a, a decent amount of COVID relief funding in, you know, from the federal government in, in various mm-hmm. stages of, you know, stimulus and COVID relief. But those funds, as I understand it, have to be spent by the end of 2024, which is pretty fast. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the challenges that we're seeing children have in response to the pandemic, whether that's mental behavioral, mental health, behavioral health uh, mm-hmm. challenges, or whether it's just falling behind academically, mm-hmm. um, those things are, are going to take more time than, than just two years to resolve. Mm-hmm. And so one fairly simple thing that could be done is to, to give districts additional time to use those funds to support kids um, more over the long term because mm-hmm. we know these effects are going to going to be for the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, certainly, teachers were underpaid pre-pandemic. I think, given what they've lived through now, yeah. <laughs> um, we need to really look at ways to boost teacher how pay. Do we, how do we compare regionally uh, with? Because it, it again, I <clears throat> I don't know any place where teachers are getting overpaid. But, right, right. But there are we are we even competitive with the surrounding states? And That's so a forth? great question. I don't know if I know that off the top, and I don't want to speculate. But but I think. Um, my basic understanding, I think we're sort of middle of the pack. Don't, don't quote yeah. me on that, but, yeah. but um, we need to, we need to recognize yeah. the work and the sacrifice that folks put in. Um, I think, and you can speak to this, Stu, I think yeah. teachers always have put in way more than just seven to three <laughs> yes, <they laughs> at school, <laughs> but especially during COVID when yeah. they're, you know, they're not able to have plan time when they're having to cover yeah. for teachers that are out sick. Yeah. Um, and they're having to do all of their planning at home in the evenings and deal with yeah. significant numbers of student absences due to illness, yeah. all of those things. Um, do you know if COVID money could be used just to pay teacher bonuses? Just a COVID bonus, or is that outside the the the, the, the range of, of what that money is supposed to do? That's a great question. I don't actually know the specific answer to that. What I know is that the the money has to be used for um, 
basically responding to COVID, meaning yeah. meaning sort of helping students or or you know even um, retrofitting buildings so that they're mm. you know better air, indoor air quality yeah, exactly that yeah. type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's an allowable use of those funds. What I know mm. is that districts um, have been hesitant to use those funds for staff because they are one time, mm-hmm. and the last thing you want to do is hire a bunch of new people. And then have to let them go in a year or two because you can't sustain the funding. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do remember when I signed my first contract back mm-hmm. in '84. Uh, I had a whopping salary of eighteen thousand dollars. Yep. And then I think there was there were health benefits <laughs> on top of that. Mm-hmm. So that was. Uh, and then I made the mistake of walking down the hallway with one of the other veteran teachers. And, and I referred to summer as my time off. And he quickly <laughs> corrected me. He said, Stu, that is not time off. That's a three-month layoff. You always remember that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, okay, well, that's true. That's true. It's a yep. three-month layoff. And I had something to do, so it didn't bother me. But right. for those who had to think, well, what am I going to do during the summer? Because I actually do need more income. Right. It's a, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, there's a challenge to that life. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a second break. When we come back, let's, uh, let's turn the page a little bit and uh, cause you're on the cusp of an exciting adventure. Yes. You can only say so much about it, <laughs> but I'm going to squeeze, you know me, I'm going to squeeze everything I can out of Anne to tell us about <laughs> this, about this exciting thing on the horizon. Uh, does that sound good? Sounds good. All right. It is a friendly fire Saturday talking with Anne Hunter Pirtle and, uh, you're listening. Don't forget, you're listening to the voice of Lincoln here, 1499.3 KLIN. Interesting topics to kick off your weekend. Looking at the news with an eye of faith. Friendly Fire with Stu Kearns, 1499.3 KLIN. Welcome back. Rolling right along here on a Saturday morning, uh, talking with Ann Hunter Pirtle. And uh, Ann, uh, again, has done a, a lot of things. Most recently, uh, been the founding director of uh, Stanford Schools. But you are turning a new page. And that's how I actually heard about this. There was an article in the Journal Star saying, hey, you're, you're moving off to a different job. What is, that, what is that new position? You're heading back to D.C. I am. Yep. I'll be an impact fellow with an organization called the Federation of American Scientists. They were founded um, shortly after the Manhattan Project to, to deal with issues of ethics in science. And they're going to be assigning me to work at the U.S. Department of Energy, where I'm going to be a communications advisor to the Undersecretary for Science and Innovation. Wow. <laughs> so so what I heard was you're going to know about all the cool science stuff that's happening. Is that close? I think so. Nice. Nice. <laughs> so so how, how did you come in contact with these people and how did you uh, make the decision that, hey, this is just a too, too good to pass up? Sure. I, I uh, was in touch with a former colleague um, who I knew before in D.C. who mentioned to me, few months back that that uh, she had seen an opportunity come across her her radar for a science communications role and that's really all she knew and you know mm-hmm. would she want to put my resume in and I was like sure I, I don't think it's gonna come to anything yeah. um, but but then um, you know was invited to apply and one thing led to another and uh, we, we got rolling so that's that's kind of how it happened and it you know I wasn't um, really looking to leave stand for schools i've loved mm-hmm. being at this organization so much and i've mm-hmm. you know i'm proud of what we've built but um you know sometimes when uh when a new opportunity comes up you have to have to kind of answer yeah <laughs> now and you have 
already lived in D.C. then. I have. So uh, what are you what are you looking forward to? What are you dreading about, yeah, <laughs> about living question. in D.C.? Great question. Um, I, you know, I have missed living in a bigger city, right? Mm. I, I like, you know, being able to go see live music any night of the week. I like, you know, restaurants open a little later than 8 or 9. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that a problem? Because I'm, I'm in bed by 930. So that's, that doesn't seem like a problem. But go ahead. Um, so, and I, you know, I have a number of friends in, in the city, so I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Um, what am I dreading? You know, um, one of my favorite things about Lincoln is that it's a, it's a pretty easy place to live in a lot of ways. Certainly not for everybody and it's not perfect. Um, but you know, you can, you can drive around easily. It's, it's, you know, 15 minutes max. To, <laughs> to, <laughs> Almost anywhere. Right. And, yeah. um, there's always parking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Except maybe in the Haymarket during a basketball game, yeah, yeah, or on football Saturdays. But you know, it's just it's pretty easy to to go do life stuff. And yeah. um, in in DC, that all just becomes a little bit more complex. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you were when you were in France, now because I know I've got kids who live away and then uh-huh. they come back, and mm-hmm. they have they have these hankerings yeah. for food that that are connected to this place. Yeah. And when you when you were away and you come back or when you're in DC and you finally come back is there anything you just say, "Oh, that's a flavor I just that's that's home. I've got to I've got to taste that." Definitely runza. I yeah. mean, <laughs> a runza cheeseburger is about as good as it gets in my book. Yeah. Um I love the oven. I, I think that restaurant is just incredible. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I'm back, I try to get there. Yeah. Um and By the way, uh, my 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 uh, son and daughter-in-law are with you on the Runza. They always have to go to Runza. <laughs> For some reason, they love Amigos. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not be editorialized either way on that. And then they, and, but my daughter, that she always wants to go to the oven. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So it's a great place. advertising for the oven there. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And I also really love Dish downtown. Mm. Um, that's that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite restaurants at the moment. So yeah, yeah. try to get back there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the big city life, one of the things that people forget is that D.C. really isn't also far from a lot of other places, right? That's right. You're, uh, uh, whatever, is it a train ride to go to New York? Yeah, or? three and a half or so hour train or bus ride to New uh, York, mm-hmm. um, maybe eight hours to Boston, a couple hours to Philadelphia. Gotcha. An hour or less to Baltimore. Yeah. It's all really close. Yeah. The the train travel back there, I mean, the, the, the population is condensed enough. It, it seems to be pretty effective. Yeah. Uh, uh, it is a challenge out here in the in the Great Plains where you're, you know, you've got <laughs> low population areas. It is. Uh, Although I, I wish, like, every week I wish there was a, a bus or a train between Lincoln and Omaha. I would ride that thing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> where, where should it end in, in Omaha? Make it a market to market, hay market to old market. See, I'd, I'd take advantage of that. Right? Yeah. I think a lot of people would. Yeah. And not just on game days. Yes, that is probably <laughs> true. That is probably true. Uh, so this back to the job. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're in communications, then uh, I assume there's some writing, some speech writing, some... But you also have to know what you're writing about. Yes. So how do you prepare yourself to uh, to know the particular science that you're working with yeah. And then to communicate effectively about it. What's that process look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it is a challenge. There's a lot to absorb about um, some of the different technologies that are being worked on and researched. And mm-hmm. um, some are, you know, higher funding priorities than others for the Department of Energy. So um, I'm in a period right now where I'm, I have 
a, a couple of months to kind of get up to speed on a lot of that before mm. I really start at DOE. So <laughs> I'm in the process of doing a lot of reading and uh-huh. making connections and asking a lot of questions right now. Yes, yes. <laughs> that, uh, and I assume that then uh, that's a collaborative pro- uh, you know, uh, process yes. to, to make sure that you're using the right nomenclature and all the different things. Yes. To, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. There's a group of um, about half a dozen fellows that are all um, going to go into the Department of Energy at the same time mm-hmm. um, in a couple months. And um, so, yeah, we're getting to learn together and learn from each other. Everyone mm-hmm. has kind of different specializations. So some of these folks are more tech experts than I am um, and can really speak to these technologies and others are more yeah. experts on policy design. Yeah. So I'm getting to learn from all of them, which is great. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, DC, I've been there several times, and there there is a palpable sense that this is the place where things happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, this mm-hmm. is do you having mm-hmm. lived there then, and now going to live there again? What what impact does that have on your daily life? Of just kind of feeling like I'm maybe I'm not living in the center of the world, but it kind of feels like that. <laughs> yeah, I think the the thing that I took away from my initial experience in DC a few years ago was this rock-solid knowledge that I or really anyone can influence policy, can influence kind of how, how events play out in our country. And that's an experience that, that not everyone gets to have, but I wish everyone could have. Mm. Um, I think, you know, just geographically, being in Nebraska, it feels like we're really far away from all of that, and we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and... <clears throat> You know, we don't we don't always have the um, the workforce pipelines to places like D.C. and New York that some other states might have. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is something that has really shaped my worldview. And and one thing I really like about D.C. is that you're surrounded by people who who understand that the world doesn't have to be exactly as we see it now. It is mm-hmm. changeable. It is moldable. Mm-hmm. And um there are opportunities to create a better future. Yeah. And that's one thing I really love about that place. Yeah, My, uh, my daughter's out in LA in mm-hmm. the film industry. And one of the things she always says about the film industry is they like people from the Midwest because they have a good work ethic. Yes. <laughs> is that the same thing on the East coast? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. I, I think that has helped me <laughs> land, I think more than one job in my time. I also think um, something that's valuable on the East coast as a Midwesterner is being, um, nice but effective Mm. right i think people really appreciate that there can be a tendency you know it like it's like anything um some ambitious people can get really arrogant and can get you know demanding and even kind Mm. of bully their staff or things like that and i think um you know midwesterners are less likely to do that (laughs) and so um you know i've seen an appreciation for folks from from this part of the world um because we get stuff done, we work hard, and we're, you know, pleasant to work with, which yes. is huge. <laughs> you can combine Nebraska nice <laughs> with uh, big city efficient. Right. You know, that'd be a, that's a pretty good combo. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Uh, one last break. When we come back, we're going to do a little shameless plug, and uh, and we'll just see if we can squeeze out a bit more information about uh, this exciting future. Having a great conversation today with Ann hunter Pertle. Glad you're along. Uh, we'll be right back here on 1499.3. KLIN. 
bringing you local voices to break down the news of the week. Friendly Fire with Stu Kurds on the voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. Welcome back. Uh, talking this morning with Ann Hunter Pirtle. And uh, Ann, it is that time of the program where we always do a shameless plug. So I say to you, plug away. Anything you want to plug. Yes. So the organization that I founded in 2016 and that I'm on the verge of, of saying goodbye to for now is Stand for Schools. Um, the website is standforschools.org. There's a big orange donate button on the top of the page. <laughs> if, if folks want to, you know, support the organization, whether it's financially, you can also sign up for, for um, email updates for free. Um, keep up with what's happening, especially in the legislature as it, as it concerns education policy in Nebraska. You can also find us on Facebook at Stand okay. for Schools. And it's 4-F-O-R, not the number 4. Correct. Yep, S-T-A-N-D-F-O-R-S-C-H-O-O-L-S.org. And she spelled it correctly. So <laughs> we, win, we win the spelling bee there. Uh, the, is, it, is it fair to, uh, to think of uh, Stanford Schools as kind of a lobbying organization or more of an informational organization? Or yeah, we're a, we're a policy and information organization, gotcha. first and foremost. We yeah. do some lobbying. Um, yeah. But, you know, really what we're trying to do is make sure that Nebraskans understand the value of our public schools, what some of the opportunities and challenges are that they're facing, yep. and then how, you know, proposed policies might play into that. Gotcha. Now, going all the way back, when you were in D.C. the last time, you yeah. were doing some speech writing. And I was. Now you're going to be in communications again. What uh, Talk about that those experiences doing speech writing and the kind of things that you, that you worked on. Yeah. There were some incredible highlights. Um, so I was working for then EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy in the, the second term of the Obama administration. And at the time, EPA was working on some... Um, regulations on carbon pollution from power plants that were the first of their kind was really sort of the centerpiece of the administration's climate agenda. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I got to write the speech for my boss when she stood up next to President Obama to announce these rules. And that was a that was a pretty huge thrill. (laughs) You know, that was that really? Was, Seeing the president? Is that exciting? <laughs> <Was> that, <laughs> that's, uh, you know. um, By the way, as a youth, I, we had an, I was with part of a group that had an appointment to see President Carter, and we got <laughs> bumped by a politician at the last minute. Not cool. So I will never forgive Bella Ebzug. She's, <laughs> she's on my blacklist. She's the one who took our spot. And so that's, she's, she's no longer with us, but I, I guess I should forgive her. But, uh, <laughs> I suppose so. Yes. But yeah, not cool. It's not, not cool. No, not cool at all. But okay, I, back to you. But yeah, I'll also say, you know, in that role, I got I got to see some of the best and worst in in what America can do, honestly. So the the best was I I got to be at the um the Paris Agreement climate negotiations in late 2015, um, where basically the all of the countries of the world came together in a, a UN conference. And set some um, ambitious goals for reducing carbon pollution that's contributing to climate change. I got to, you know, be there for the two weeks of that conference, and I wasn't anywhere near the the negotiating room <laughs> on that, but was just able to kind of be around it and see what was happening. And mm-hmm. and really, um, it was the at the time at least it was the largest gathering of world leaders that had ever taken place. Um, mm-hmm. And the commitment that we saw from all countries to tackle this global problem was really inspiring. Mm. On the on the tough side, um, I spent two months in Flint, Michigan, 
doing crisis communications for the EPA um, as that city was facing its lead and water crisis. Mm. And um, I think from watching, you know, the way that a number of Michigan officials reacted, I think I learned a lot about what never to do as a public servant. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are a lot of lessons out there lately. Absolutely. Could, yes. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, the way that, um, you know, Flint, that still hasn't been totally resolved. And, yeah. and the way that the rest of the country sort of left Flint behind um, was mm-hmm. was deeply upsetting to see. And so um, I took away from, from those kind of experiences really within a few months of each other, understanding the best of what we can be and the worst. And I think mm-hmm. we've seen more of that during COVID maybe mm-hmm. than, than any other time too. Yeah. Very polarizing. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of energy and your time in France, uh, again, I've only been to France once. Our guide told us that they're very heavily dependent on uh, uh, nuclear uh, energy mm-hmm. and which I, I assume leaves a hardly any carbon footprint. None. Uh, so, uh, but we've had this battle here in our own country of kind of saying we've had a bad experience. We're not going to go back to that. Right. It seems to me like that, Again, at least should be on the table right. as an as an option. Uh, and and again, I think we're doing it. Probably we have better ways of doing this than we probably did it twenty or thirty years ago. Any any thoughts about that? Definitely. And I'll just just speak for myself here, not for anybody else. Yes, yes. But just my own opinion. I think absolutely. I think nuclear has to be part of the mix, especially mm-hmm. as we're looking at at some pretty extreme climate implications um, going forward. And so, um, yeah, I think I think. You know, shutting down um, some of the the reactors in the way that has been done in recent years um, leaves us, you know, behind where we need to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it just it just seems to me again like we've uh, because of, a, of again some legitimately horrible experiences Absolutely. both in in the United States and else, elsewhere. Absolutely. That all of a sudden it's just completely off the table, mm-hmm. and yet this. Uh, and I, it seems like, and again, I'm, I'm not really super updated on the science, but it seems like they're they're getting better and better in terms of how to manage uh, the waste and details that go along with uh, with nuclear. That's right. And I think the other thing that um, maybe hasn't been you know fully talked about or explored in the way that it needs to be is the fact that air pollution from from fossil fuels is the number one cause of premature death. In, in the world, mm. um, outdoor and indoor um, air mm. pollution. So, um, if you think about, you know, countries like China and India that are that are developing rapidly and have really serious pollution problems, um, you can think about the the outdoor implications of that across much of the world that doesn't have electricity. Um, people, most often women, are cooking indoors over open yeah. fires and and using um, wood or coal even. Um, and inhaling that day after day, you know, really damages your lungs. So um, absolutely, there are dangers that come with nuclear, but there are dangers to our health that come with fossil fuels, too. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, yeah, I, again, kind of an all of the above. Let's, let's not take anything off the table that right. could, could actually be a net, a net positive. Just a couple of minutes left. Uh, so we talked about the things you look forward to when you're in Nebraska. So mm-hmm. you're headed, how soon are you headed to D.C.? It's looking like early March. 
Yeah. Okay, so it's it's getting close. It's coming up. Yeah. It's, it's getting real. <laughs> it is. The, uh, is, is, is you, are you going to make your dad like drive the trailer uh, to take you out there? Or, no, no, oh, that's not should. the plan. <laughs> no, you should. You should make it. Say, Dad, we're going to have an adventure together. And the, uh, I'm, I'm going on the record on that one. When you, what are the things that you're? Uh, you mentioned a little bit. What are some of the things you're really looking forward to in terms of just being back there and uh, and and uh, all of that means. Yeah, I'm excited to um, once again be able to have an impact at a at a, a more national scale. And um, you know, in some ways, uh, I'll be in a smaller role, or uh, you know, I'll just be part of a much larger organization. I'll go from an organization mm-hmm. of three to several tens of thousands. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll be a, a tiny part of of what the Department of Energy does. But I'm looking forward to you know, having an impact on some of these major issues that our country is facing. And um, I have loved being in Nebraska and being in a, a role and um, in a field where one person or a small group of people can make a difference. I've really loved that. Mm-hmm. I'm also um, someone that loves, um, you know, trying to maximize my impact. And so that's where I, I feel like uh, I can do that. Yeah. this next opportunity without a doubt i will uh a burning question for me the baseball fan will you go to a nationals game absolutely it's, it's kind of a thing isn't it it there? is i love the nationals yeah. and it's it's great you can go after work you know on a on a weeknight um yeah. you know tickets aren't too expensive typically and you know just hang out at the at the ballpark with some friends it's great it's one of my favorite things Yes. Okay. Well, then I, I fully endorse that. I, Stu, I, I only have one baseball cap, but it's a Nationals cap. So. Nice. Sweet. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, it would be better if it were a Royals cap, but, but it, you got to root for the home team. Yeah. Uh, and thank you so much for taking your time to be here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Stu. Yeah, you bet. been great talking today with Ann Hunter Pirtle, and uh, glad to have you along. Stay tuned the rest of the day. Uh, I leave you saying, as I always do, to think about it and talk about it. We'll see you next week.